Due to the Nakatomi Corporation's legacy of greed around the globe, they're about to be taught a lesson in the real use of power. You will be witnesses. Hello and welcome, welcome and hello, this is Wait, You Haven't Seen? And it's a podcast where we talk about movies, specifically a movie that one of us hasn't ever seen before. Uh, This is episode number 26. We are talking about the movie Die Hard, starring Bruce Willis. And joining me this week, I have Keith. Heyo! Hey. Uh, Also joining us is Christina. Hi, hi. And joining us from the Joystick and Mouse podcast is Alex Obisu. Hello! Happy to be here, fellow moviegoers. Hey, we're happy to have you. Uh, now, Alex, you have never seen Die Hard before yesterday. Never seen it. And uh, just like The Godfather, when I first saw that for the first time about five, four months ago, that's another one uh, hmm. that I'm a little late to the game with. But uh, just like that, you know, I've I've received so much hate around the idea that I've never seen Die Hard that I was just basically forced into it. And then, you know, Travis, you were like, hey, be on my podcast and talk about it. I was like, yes, great excuse to watch it. So. Happy to be here. Excellent. Well, so um, first thing I'll ask is, having never seen it before, what did you think of it? Oh, I thought it was great. Um, I really did. And and, uh, so we got to the end of the movie, and I was watching it with uh, a couple of friends and then my wife. Everybody else had seen it except me. So we were were sitting there at the end of it, and, you know, I I was live tweeting the whole thing. I finally typed out, you know, it it was a blast. It was great. And I was telling him and my buddy Justin, and it was like, yeah, but did you like it just because of like how tropey it was? And just because you were, because I was kind of poking fun at it the whole time. Mm-hmm. He was like, were you just hating on it? And like, and that's why you liked it. I was like, no, I, I like really genuinely enjoyed the movie. I thought it was fun. It was, it had everything that you want in an action movie. Um, I now get all of like the, <laughs> the, the references, like the Yippie Kaye thing and, uh, and, and what else? The who's in charge here? I am. Oh yeah. No, yeah. you're not. Or, or <laughs> whatever he says, you know, like not anymore. You're not like that right. happened like three times. And that, that's such a tropey thing to do. All those little cultural references now make total sense to me. <laughs> so I feel somewhat more complete in my pop culture uh, soul. So, well, excellent. Yeah, I, I it, it was funny cause I got home last night and I was going to re- just rewatch the movie to get prepped and, and figure out what audio I wanted to capture and all of that. And I saw that you were live tweeting it. And so I waited to watch the movie until I got all your live tweet reactions because they were great. <laughs> like, you know, it just, uh, you had a few talking about how, uh, Argyle is just useless just sitting in the, in, because he kind of, he was sort he of is. the chick in the bucket for this movie for like 90% of it. I, the whole time I'm like, dude, if you turn the radio down, you could literally <laughs> be way more effective. And then he kind of like knocked the dude out and it was great. And yeah. then all that, that was it. So but uh, I, uh yeah and there you're was right. the escape there was the getaway car at the end you're right true you're right how else to get away from the media but in yeah. a limousine how yeah the most non-conspicuous and a limousine that also had half of its front end bashed <laughs> Just, in yeah very not it was a lincoln sir that was a lincoln that is a durable vehicle <laughs> you're right you're definitely right no, I think, and you're right to bring up how tropey it is because it's absolutely tro- a trope fest of a movie. But that the movie leans into all of that, and that oh, yeah. it works for it so much. Like it's just enjoyable. And 
reading trivia about this and reading about um, John McTiernan making this, he actually, so this is based on a novel. I don't know if any of you know that or not. I didn't know that. But um, there was, uh, Roderick Thorpe wrote a novel called The Detective, and uh, that got made into a movie starring Frank Sinatra. And then this novel was the sequel to that. The novel was called Nothing Lasts Forever. So initially, oh, uh, John McClane, who in the novel is uh, named Joe Leland, initially they had to offer Frank Sinatra the role because he had already played him on screen once. And he was like 78 at the time, so he turned it down. Um, mm. But uh, yeah, and what they did. But how they, do you not ask Frank Sinatra? Well, hey, no, they were contractually okay? obligated to. Like, they didn't have a choice. They had to. Well, um, we're also talking about Frank Sinatra. How do you not offer that level of respect? Well, that's true. Um, no, but uh, th- so they made some changes from the book to the movie, um, some pretty significant ones. And one of them was that they changed um, the fact that they are in the book. They're actually terrorists. And John McTiernan said, you know, if we make them terrorists, it's not going to be like it. It'll make it too dark and it won't make it a fun summer movie because this was a summer movie of 88. So he changed them from terrorists to thieves to make it uh, a little bit lighter in terms of like that tone. Counterpoint to that, I would like to lodge a formal complaint of having to watch a Christmas movie in September. That's well, it's just a movie that takes place during Christmas. Well, uh, I yeah, this I feel like we'll that's get into that in a little bit. But yeah, we're gonna talk about we're gonna debate the merits of this being a Christmas movie or not at some point here um, soon. But um, no, I, I I he made those changes to kind of lighten it up a little bit, which helped this a lot, and it uh, it one hundred percent made for a better film um, because it it would have been even tropier if they were just terrorists. I think having them be thieves and like trying to outsmart the cops is like like uh like hans gruber says i'm an exceptional thief right because his whole plan was to make everyone think he's dead and he can get away with 640 million dollars in negotiable bearer bonds which brings about the question of why did the nakatomi corporation have that much money in bearer bonds in the 1980s like that's crazy in itself (laughs) there was there's uh, a lot that's generally crazy about the the logistics of this movie But, and I think like if they've great. got that much effectively cash on hand, what what does their bank account look like? What what do their non liquid assets look like? Ooh, also, why did why is it taking so long to build that damn building? If you got the money, freaking get no it up doubt. faster. Gosh, hey, so you're dealing long. with unions. It's gonna they're gonna take their time. That's true. That's true. Yeah. Uh, and man. and Josh Joshua Torres twelve twenty one in the chat brings up a good point. Uh, you know, this movie helped make a lot of these tropes because true. it kind of did. That's like, very true. This originally was going to have, uh, I mean, the list of people that were originally going to play John McClane is pretty much every action star from the 1980s. Uh, Schwarzenegger, Stallone, you know, all of that were offered the role. But originally the script had John McClane just being another one of those kind of super cops, those superhuman cops. And John, um, John McTiernan said, you know what, that's boring. I don't like that. And he had just done Predator the year before this with Schwarzenegger. Mm. So he wanted to do something a little different, and that's where they started reworking the script to make John McClane more of an everyman. And that's how they ended up getting to um, Bruce Willis because he's not, he wasn't an action star. I, this movie is what made him an action star. He was known. He's a great action star too, man. He is, but he and was known really primarily for comedies only. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. He really gives you that feel that he is a blue collar cop. You know, he's out on the street. He's, he's, you know, bringing guys in. He's getting, roughed up in the streets trying to keep people safe and you really get that feel for it 
Yeah, he's a yeah. guy that is in the wrong place at the wrong time. He doesn't want to be there, but he's going to make the best of that situation, um, you know, 100%. And, and he's great in this movie, and it really oh, launched yeah. his career as far as an action star goes. He had been doing Moonlighting uh, at this point, and I think he was actually still working on Moonlighting when they were filming this. So part of yep. the reason you got some of the other side characters uh, beefed up a little bit more maybe than in some other action movies is because of his... Uh, his schedule and he was getting exhausted. So they made like the, um, Al character a little bit more, the, the chief, the, um, the chief who's also the, uh, the principal from breakfast club and just great at playing a complete dick. <laughs> and, and I, I won't argue that point. And nope. he gets the best come up and slide in the entire movie. Right after, uh, right after McLean drops the C four down the elevator shaft and blows up the like the third floor of the building, and then Deputy Chief Robinson gets on the the horn talking to him, and what McLean says to him, you know, I'm not the one who just got you know whatever on national TV. Like that one's one of those. The first time you hear it, you're just like, whoa! He got reamed, and I loved it. <laughs> and it's that was one of my favorite parts. That, for eighty nine, that was some serious language yeah oh yeah it was so funny we were all like in my living room like wiling out like oh my god (laughs) like you know like just like losing it it was so funny and uh locutus uh of borg in the chat room says if they'd made john a super cop i wouldn't have liked this movie it's it it really i agree with that it's not gonna be the same movie if he's not and that was part of why a lot of the sequels they they're diminishing returns in the diehard sequels because as they go he gets more and more superhuman and he can take more, you know, because it's yeah. a sequel. Yep. Everything's got to get bigger. The explosions have to get bigger. The stakes have to get higher. So by the fourth and movie, very, he's... And genuinely, I'm, I'm very genuinely interested if the explosions get bigger, like how the explosions get bigger than Die Hard 1. So I, I'm very much looking forward to watching the next three, right? Like there's four in the in the whole series? Well, if you go by what's been released, there's five. If you go by what I count, there's three and a half. Um, because <laughs> oh. there's Die Hard Two is fine. Um, I it's it's a perfectly good sequel and a perfectly good action movie. Um, Die Hard with a Vengeance we've covered on this show. It was our first episode. Um, and I think it's better than two, but not quite yeah, as good okay. as this one. That's um, the one with Samuel L. Jackson, right? Correct. And okay, then yeah, four, great. yeah, four and five came several years later, and I don't think they quite live up to it because they get a little too too over the top um Uh, and what they did was to expand these movies and make them bigger they kept expanding how much space it took up so this whole movie takes place in the nakatomi tower in one building die hard 2 takes place at dulles international airport so it's a little bit bigger but it's still really contained die hard that's i live right down the street from dulles so i definitely want to watch it and and then um die hard 3 die hard with a vengeance takes place in new york city so it's a little bit bigger yet, but it's still not too ridiculous. Most of it's in the island of Manhattan. And then you get to, uh, I think it's, what is it, Live Free or Die Hard is the fourth one. Um, mm. And uh, that one takes place in like most of the eastern seaboard. And then Die Hard, what is it, A Good Day to Die Hard, I think is the fifth one. Or is, I think yep. that one, doesn't die that one harder? take place in Russia? Yep. I thought that one was Die Harder. No, that's two. Die Hard oh. 2 is Die Harder. Okay. Yep. Okay. I'm seeing that now. Okay. And is there uh, like a die hardest? Um, like I'm dying the I'm dying harder than you. Something like that. Yeah, I actually think that was uh, 
I want to say that was like a, a translated title in Japan or something. Is really? like I die harder than you or something. <laughs> of course. Just butchered. Uh, yeah. Oh, t- totally. No, I, I mean, this movie makes, makes a lot of these tropes a thing and it leans into them. It's got the right balance of humor and action and the structure to it. Like the pacing for it is perfect. It's actually the longest diehard movie, believe it or not. The first one is. But it's paced so that it doesn't feel like it's almost two hours and 15 minutes long. Mm. It really didn't feel that long. You know, and it's because the way that they structured it and the way that they kept building the tension and building the stakes without kind of overdoing it and overplaying their hands, I think, is what, what really does it. Because that, That's true. I didn't ever feel like that movie went on way too long. No, it doesn't drag and, at any point. And neither and, was it too short by any stretch of the imagination. I, I thought it was very well delivered. Yep, it was pretty well cut and set up for the right amount of time that it needed to be. So can I ask, for everybody here, do you guys consider this one of the best movies of all time? This It's high, definitely, but I wouldn't say the very best. Oh, no, 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 certainly not the very best, uh, because we all know that is Mad Max Fury Road. Um, <laughs> uh, you can agree to disagree on that one. I'm just... Uh, I'm just wanting Scott's ears to ring somewhere. Right, exactly. Somewhere Scott um, Johnson's ears are burning. Uh, but no, I I really do see this as like when you think of quintessential action movie, I totally see why this is like the template. I, uh-huh. I see yeah, why one... everybody's like, okay, but where does it rank next to Die Hard? And right. I get it. I get it now because this is it's very good. I, I don't. I I still haven't let it simmer and and I haven't digested it enough to figure out where this ranks in my uh, movies, like best movies of all time, but it's definitely up there. I think it's, I think it's really fun. It's a movie that I could definitely watch again and again. Yeah, absolutely. It is, uh, it is the quint. it is in my top five action movies of all time. Easily. Uh, probably oh, easy. top yeah. three there because of, you've got the perfect casting of, uh, of Bruce Willis just as the, you know, guy that, I mean, he literally is just, I don't want to be here. Oh shit! Stuff's going down. I've got to take care of it, so I can because I have that ability. Hans Gruber yep. is one of the greater villains in a film, and this this was uh, Alan Rickman's first Hollywood role. And not only that, oh, I forgot Alan about Rickman that. really made you feel like he was that smart. Mm-hmm. That oh, he, absolutely! That he would have counted on all these things happening. And it's crazy. He yeah, was, was forty one years old when they made this. He so, does not look forty one in that movie. No, he doesn't, but he had done, you know, he'd done a lot of stage work and a lot of British television, but he hadn't done anything in Hollywood and he almost didn't take the role because he was afraid to have his first role be a villain and then get typecast, which he did for a while. Um but he's yeah, just yeah. he's so good in this because he's calculating and yet charming at the same time. You know, just even little things like saying, you know, oh, it's a nice suit and he's talking about suits so like I could talk about men's fashion and and building models all day, but work 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 you know he's he's great in this um and uh let me throw throw something out for you guys sure kind of a a mind-blown sort of sort of situation who was the better super villain in this movie hans gruber or john mcclain yeah, I saw your tweet on that, and that is kind of a toss-up because McLean is writing writing messages on bodies, and yeah, <laughs> it was dark. I was like, "Holy crap! This is like some psycho stuff." 
Like, well, it, it, the, like when that elevator came up and the look of confusion and utter like terror on the terrorist faces, I was like, oh, man, we got like two supervillains going at it almost. Kind Do you of, guys yeah. see that? Like or. or yeah. OK. I, well, I, I, yeah, I, they I were antagonizing each other. Yeah, like I, and, and all the characteristics that you were just talking about, like he's calm, he's calculated. All of that literally is John. <laughs> like, yeah, that is, it is. That's, He's very the much same. antagonizing them, trying to get a reaction, trying to get them to screw up. Yeah, and I and I would say that um, I think it's just what's their motivation. Their motivation is a little different. The the ways that they would go about doing stuff, though, they both equally blew shit up. They both killed a lot of people, mm-hmm. and um, I think just the the ends <laughs> were <laughs> certainly different. But as I was watching, I was like, oh, man, both of these guys are just kind of kind of bad, you know? Neither one is great. And and it's like <laughs> the perfect anti-hero. Um, now, I did think this was a, a bit of trivia that I hadn't known before. And and with any IMDb trivia, you know, you have to decide if how true it is or not. But Bruce Willis met with a lot of real police officers getting ready for the role. And one of the things he noticed was that almost all of them to a man had this dark, macabre sense of humor. And so he worked mm. that in. And it's funny because action heroes get criticized for joking around in films a lot. And, you know, even Bruce Willis has said that. But he's like, telling jokes in these situations is kind of a release for these guys. So it sort of made sense that he did that. Yeah. But I, I thought that was interesting that, you know, we, we kind of joke about the trope of, like, the wisecracking action hero. But it sort of makes sense, you know. And that was what he saw with all those cops as he was, uh, and, and a lot of them were technical advisors on the film as well. And so they were genuinely a... making cracks. Like these are police officers saying that they genuinely made cracks to kind of lighten the mood. Yeah. He's really, yeah. It's a coping mechanism. They deal with a lot of grim stuff. So, you know, they, you know, how do you get past it? Well, you, you kind of got to chuckle at it and say you're okay until you believe it. Right. Yeah. Um, so I was also found it interesting reading through the trivia. Um, if you pay attention the next time you watch the movie and see how many times they cut away from Alan Rickman when he's firing a gun, because apparently he could not stop himself from flinching at the muzzle flash. So they never showed really? his face when he would fire a weapon. They would always cut away or they would do it off screen. Um, so I mm-hmm. thought that was kind of interesting because uh, McTiernan wanted a, a, a kind of an exaggerated realism for this movie. So he had them rig the blanks to fire uh, louder and have a larger muzzle flash than they typically would um, to have this kind of hyper-real thing going on. They actually went out and re-recorded all of the audio for all of the weapons so that it sounded more authentic too, which wasn't done a whole lot at this point. A lot of times movies in this age were still using a lot of the stock uh, audio that was you know as far back as the 50s. Um, Yeah. So that there was... was a bit of that. I found that there was actually a bit of that. Um, well, that was one of the things I wanted to bring up. So in the audio piece, like when you think about, for instance, when they were shooting that, that scene where they were shooting the glass all around him and he knew that he was barefoot. So they, they were trying to shoot the glass so he wouldn't be able to run mm-hmm. um, during that. You know, like you could tell that shattering sound was very p- post-production, you know, mm-hmm. not knocking it by any means. I mean, it's, it's you know, it's all oh, right. Days fine um but it was that that was pretty obvious even the sound of him like kind of crunching on the on the glass at times like some of that w- was very prominent 
Um, and you guys obviously have seen a lot more movies um, than than maybe I have. Uh, so at what point did that start to get a little less obvious? It, it took a few years still because I think what they had to do was they use like a sugar glass in movies. So it breaks easy and it's not as sharp. And I think they've messed with the formula of that over the years to make it sound a little bit better. Um, and, you know, just, just sound design in general has gotten better in the last uh, almost, what, 30-something years since this movie came out. It it started getting better in the, I would say, the mid-90s is when you really started to see um, better sound design in an action movie that doesn't just sound like it's using stock sounds. Like, they really took the time to record the audio that they wanted to use. Um, I think the first the first one I can think of that really did it was um, Ben Burt in Star Wars in the 70s, where he went out for, I think, was the story I read, it's something like for a year before they, they did all the recordings. He just went out and recorded sounds and then created the sounds of Star Wars. Um, but, oh, yeah, I've seen that, like where he'll... Yeah, no, I know exactly what you're talking he took about. A, he took a wrench and whacked a guy wire for a radio yeah. tower or something like that and got the laser sound. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, a bunch of really practical stuff, you know, like a biplane flying by. Things like that. Totally. Yeah. And and it really, as you moved out of the 80s into the 90s and the budgets for these movies kept getting bigger, they could devote more of the budget to things like the Foley work and the sound and make it so they could get the glass-breaking sounds that match better to what they're doing because it's still almost all done in post-production anyway, mm-hmm. but they can at least get something that matches the way that glass should sound uh, a lot better. Like not, to, not, to, um, not to really derail us from talking about this movie and switching gears to Logan, which is one of my favorite movies of all time for a variety of reasons, but... Um, there's that classic video that, that has been going around the internet showing Hugh Jackman re-recording himself running through the the forest. You guys know what I'm talking yeah, about? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I like do. that. That's what I kind of imagine them, you know, doing. And, and I mean, what I know they do because I've seen some of the ways that they do it. Uh, you know, just kind of like breaking, crunching glass. But it was almost like magnified in Die Hard, where like they couldn't quite get that sound right. Um, with, with some of that and you know i mean it is what it is it was the back then that was great right like that's fine um yeah, yeah. well you know this movie had a, a budget of 28 million dollars so wow. you know yeah it's that's still quite a bit in in 1987 1988 but that's not uh you know that's that's not on anywhere near the level even adjusted for inflation of what modern action no. movies have so no. you know and it made 83 million in the u.s and 141 million worldwide it was a huge movie in 1988 yeah, um, and yeah, I'm sure that's still... a pretty good profit margin too. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Oh, yeah. You got to imagine like what the royalties are like for that movie with all the the, the references, um, the way that they just keep pumping out the Die Hard movies where mm-hmm. they kept, you know, maybe not oh, yeah. so much anymore. Well, who knows? Maybe they'll do another one. Um, yeah, they, they, I'm sure that this is just the gift that keeps on giving. Yeah. Plus, you you look at like rights for. I mean, this has been playing on on cable tv for 20 something years oh yeah yeah which don't ever watch it edited for tv because it's it's bad i couldn't imagine so the uh, f-bombs in that movie what oh, were, were you guys um ex- well i guess you guys having seen it a number of times i wasn't expecting it to be that like f-bomby not that i had a problem with it 
between that and the gratuitous boob shots, like those were kind of the the things that I was like a little surprised with. I knew it was rated R. I just thought it was going to be for violence. And I was like, oh, OK, this is like legit action movie. Like, OK, I get it. I get it. Not yeah. to say well, that. Well, part the, of it the too pulling is, the one uh, girl out of the office that one made sense because they kind of set that up when they burst into the room with john and his wife yeah and so so you knew that was going to be happening somewhere the calendar thing i think that was just kind of a tropey thing about guys who work on buildings and cars or anything you know you you work with your hands like that you're gonna have a booby calendar up yeah yeah yeah, no, that that was that was a good yeah, and I like how they like they showed it twice, and I was and I was trying to count all like the gratuitous boob shots, and I was like, okay, that's number well, that, three. That was also, I think that was also a thing to let you know, okay, he's not familiar with this building. How would he know he's back in the same place? Oh, booby calendar. There we go. Yeah, yeah, could be a navigation thing. No, this was so it, during the eighties, you could make an action movie for a decently wide audience, make it rated R. A movie, this movie, if it were made today, would be PG-13, easily. They would have cut a lot of the language out of it, especially if it was made, say, three or four but years would ago. They have been, but to do PG-13, you also have to cut out the blood. They And if you saw Live Free or Die Hard, the fourth one actually released in the theaters PG-13. Huh. Was it? Yeah, it was, and that was ah. one of the huge things against it at the time was, wait, you're making the fourth movie in this series PG-13 after the first three have been R, and very hard R at that. Yeah. And they made that, and when once it got released on uh, home video, they, they did the unrated cut and put all, all the swearing and stuff back in. Because, I mean, come on, the, the most famous line from these movies drops an F-bomb. So in yeah. the PG-13 version, they covered it up with a gunshot. He says, you know, yippee-ki-yay, mother, and then uh, there's a gunshot. Yeah, it was dumb because I saw it, and I was very upset by that. Uh, but they yeah. but they released it on video, and I'm sure— I am a friend. Did fine or— Yeah, once they released it on video, they put a few, few of those things back in. And I think—I'd have to look, but I think the fifth one got released as an R. Um, but I haven't seen that one because I kind of—after Live Free or Die Hard, I gave up on it. You know, it was—it just— it was, it was sinking much. the ice movie. We can't be friends anymore. Oh, don't get me started on G.I. Joe, please. I'll have to tell you that story sometime, but uh, I, I have a, a, a bad taste in my mouth from seeing G.I. Joe, The Rise of Cobra in theaters. Um, no, I, I just, I think that if this movie was very much a product of the time, like, I know your first couple of tweets you were doing in your live tweeting was talking about how 80s this was with the hair and, oh yeah, you know, they're referencing Showtime Lakers and like all that. But it's also the filmmaking of it. I mean, like I say, this came a year after um, Predator, which was the same director, John McTiernan, and he was known for his kind of R-rated action movies. Um, he did Hunt for Red October. He did... Um, the Thirteenth Warrior uh, later on in the '90s. If you ever saw that, like this was uh, um, Last Action Hero was John McTiernan. He was very much known for this kind of stuff. But this, this was kind of right in his prime. It was Predator, Die Hard, and then Hunt for Red October. I think was his next one. So it was like kind of three real good hits right in a row. Yeah, yeah, and I, I um, it was it was very '80s. Um, just kind of going back to that comment, like the things that that originally or uh, yeah, that like really stuck out for me when I was watching. I was like, man, this is 80s. Yeah, the hair, <laughs> yep. the fact that they had carpeted bathrooms in executive suites. Yeah. 
Um, cocaine on cocaine. the desk. I was about to say cocaine. Like just all that, uh, and and I and also just the 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 technology, right? The fact that they had that Fallout looking computer in the the the, <laughs> the check or the check in area. Oh yeah, where you know he started typing in the the last name and it would come up and then it looked all blocky and stuff. And I loved it. I thought it was. I thought that was a great piece. Um, yeah, it's like old technology, sure, but there was something about technology back in like the eighties and the nineties when you'd watch those movies, there would be, it, it just like, it's timeless. Same thing like alien, uh, star Wars, like all those like sci-fi movies where it's, suppo- it's supposed to be the future, but it's not. Um, that's, uh, that technology is timeless. And this was another example of that even the security systems where, you know, they would type in a series of, of like command prompts. And then, you know, suddenly it would, cause all the elevators to stop working um i love that little oh, yeah. piece and like that's another piece that you see throughout the rest of cinematic history like i think i thought about like samuel jackson's character in jurassic park where he was like you know typing in all the things to to try to keep dinosaurs at bay all that sort of stuff um i i, I love that technology piece it, it shows that it's way more complicated than it probably actually is to oh, yeah. you know control I thought that was fun. Yeah, and oh, and also, can we talk about the guy who took a chainsaw to all the phone lines? <laughs> because that guy is great. He's the type of guy that just gets shit done. Everybody. Yeah, he and just that, does it. And there was another one of your big tropes was the you know the brothers, and you've got the one brother who's clean cut and meticulous, and then the other brother comes in wild hair and just just cuts through everything. Um, yeah. So yeah, he was he's great. So that's um, Alexander Gudnov is the actor. He's a Russian actor playing a German. But um, this was an American movie. Yeah, this was for the longest time the only uh, the movie that I remembered him from. And then I realized that, no, he was in. um, Well, let's see, he was in I think it was Witness as like one of the Amish people, but he also was in the money pit. He's he's actually a very funny actor or could have was uh, at times a very funny actor. Um, So I think he passed away a few years ago. But uh yeah, he he was just that guy. He was Carl was that character that just he didn't care. He was single minded and get things done. And uh, yeah, it was great. You know that created a lot of the tension throughout the rest of the movie because once his brother gets killed, that's all he he doesn't care about anything else. He just wants to kill the guy who killed his brother. Yeah, everything else be damned. And yeah. uh, that makes for a great secondary villain because he really oh, that, yeah. I mean, that's yeah. who he became was the the secondary antagonist and it, it's great because now you he's single focused and he's going to be the obstacle for john mcclain to get done what he has to get done so and also the obstacle really to uh to hans because he was pretty much the opposite of hans mm-hmm. who was very again calculated meticulous but you whereas, all, but whereas, hans also realized that he needed somebody who was extremely proficient with violence good point very good point Mm-hmm. So it was very. I thought it was very interesting. Um, I, I liked how everybody there though, like looked like a German hair metal band. I thought that was great. <laughs> oh, they were awesome. So yeah. Oh, yeah. we have two connections to previous movies we've done on this show in the cast. Uh, I do want to talk about the cast a little bit because we talked about Bruce Willis. He was great. Um, Reginald Vell Johnson, a.k.a. Carl Winslow. He'll always be known as Carl Winslow, the poor man. But I, I'm... I think it must have been he in his rider. Well, he nailed the role. It's in his rider. He has to play a cop. Because can you think of a movie or TV show he was in where he wasn't a cop? 
because I can't. Like even the first thing I ever saw him in, which was Ghostbusters, he's a cop. And uh, and he's great though. Oh, he's amazing. I love him. And, he's a great cop. Like and, he comes off as so sincere and like everything, like everything that you want to see in like the role of the cop, the protector, the loyalty, all that sort of stuff. Mm-hmm, yeah, absolutely. and I couldn't help but call him Winslow the whole time. <laughs> and oh, what about man. Al Leong? I was I wasn't expecting him with this group of European guys, but there he is, and I'm like, okay, he's get, he's there for a reason. Let's find out. Yeah, Al Leong, who. Uh, was contractually obligated to be in every action movie filmed between, I think, 1983 <laughs> and 1992. Um, mm, that's what it was. That's he's, right. he's great. And he had, uh, so he has that one quick moment where he goes up and he sets the, the gun down and then he grabs the Nestle Crunch Bar. Oh, yeah, after he, like, unloads all his magazines, so he's yeah. got them ready. That, that was makes his, sense. Yep, and that was his idea. Hey, Jay Dimes, thank you for the follow. Um. No, that was his idea. I, he actually asked. He asked McTiernan. He's like, "Hey, um, is it okay if I if I do this?" Like, he didn't want to get in trouble for grabbing food off the like props, but that was his idea to grab that, like, just as a moment of levity. And uh, yeah, he's great. I mean, we talked about Alan Rickman, William Atherton, as Richard Thornburg, who is awful. I hate Richard Thornburg as a character, and William Atherton is so good at playing. He was the reporter. Oh God, that guy was such okay. a wiener. He is so <laughs> good at playing those characters. He Ugh. he was in Ghostbusters, right? He was uh, Walter Peck in Ghostbusters, and right. uh, and then he plays Richard Thornburg in this and and in the sequel. So you know that poor dude probably still gets accosted on the street for those. Um, there were there were th- well, we'll hold unless you wanted to talk about characters that we freaking hated. I got three in mind. Well, I, I'm guessing that uh, you know, we already mentioned Thornburg. I'm guessing the other one is probably Harry Ellis. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. I, was... I wanted to punch him in the throat. <laughs> he was terrible. He was like, the, the, the whole time I'm like watching him just dig himself a grave. And I'm like, come on, dude. What are you doing? Okay, that's fine. Just lay down. At this point, just lay down. Yep. You're dead. Just take it. You're you're done. Um, no, he, and, and, you know, he was the tropey 80s uh just yuppie sales guy. Yep. And uh I mean he has a great introduction where he's doing coke on her desk when they walk in <laughs> and McLean's well, like he... you missed a bit. <laughs> well there there also was that part where he was trying to uh get at Holly. So yeah, he's yeah. trying to get with her. Yep. Um now I mentioned that we had two connections to previous movies we've done and there's very small roles, but we uh we covered a few weeks back um John Carpenter's In the Mouth of Madness. And in that movie was a, uh, an actor, and I'll see if I can find him in here because I can never remember his name. But he was in this. He was one of the terrorists in this. He went on to play Vigo the Carpathian in Ghostbusters 2, and that's where I remember him from. But the other one, and this one was uh, kind of caught me off guard. So I was reading in the trivia about the woman. Andreas Winowski? No. Oh, uh, Wilhelm von Homburg. That's ah. his name. Um, Wilhelm von the the most German of German names. That's a freaking German name, guys. And uh, yes, yeah. But um, yeah, he he went on to be Vigo, and he was in uh, in the Mouth of Madness. Um, the other one. So I was reading in the trivia, the woman that played um, the uh, Holly's maid, um, whose name I can't remember now. But, oh, the uh, lady who the reporter freaking threatened to call immigration on. Yes. Yes. God, uh, again, why I want to punch him in the throat exactly. no not him i wanted to do something else anyway no, paulina paulina that was her name paulina so Ugh. that woman is uh first of all she's not hispanic she's italian um 
but she did that role. She could play that character so well that McTiernan wanted her uh, cast of that. She had a very small part with probably about the same number of lines in it in a movie we did a few weeks ago, Running Scared, which is one of my favorite action movies of all time as well. Um, not best, favorite. There's a very, very distinct difference in that for, for me for that movie because I just love I love that movie. And if you want to hear my thoughts on it, go back and listen to that episode. But uh, she was in that too. And I never knew that until watching it this time. So I had one of those like, holy crap moments as I'm watching. And I'm like, I realized because I'd watched Running Scared so recently, I, I made that connection. So those are our two kind of, uh, I always look for connections to movies we've done on the show. Even if it's, you know, uh, as long as it's not an extra, just wandering in the background. Um, and those were the two for this one. But uh, overall, I mean, the cast was great. You had, was the third guy you didn't like, Deputy uh, Robinson? No, but now that you mention it, there's four. So he, <laughs> yeah, he, he was he was kind of a wiener too. No, the other guy was the driver, the worst. Oh, Just yeah. Just complete waste of time. I was yeah. like, when he was when he was asking him about the divorce, I'm sitting here like, what are you doing, dude? Like, leave him alone. Why are you trying to, like, get all up in that business well, for? Now, here, here I will. There, Argyle. Well, I will, I will defend him in this. And there's a line in the movie, and let me see if I can find it because I captured it. Um, but he mentions that he was a cab driver. And maybe I didn't get it, uh, get it or not. But um, it's true, especially 80s, 90s cab drivers, people wanted a conversation when they were in the cab. Today, you, you can actually pay extra to have an Uber where the driver doesn't talk to you. But yeah. Really, how do I pay extra for that? Because that would be great. <laughs> I, I, I can't remember, but there's like a there is a checkbox you can do on certain. Uh, I think it's Uber Black, but you can not have the driver talk to you, <laughs> and like so they'll funny. know that ahead of time. But you know, he comes from if he's coming from a cab driver background, he can't help but ask these questions. Like it's just in his nature. So you're right, and that is super intrusive. But given but the, you know, the time of this movie was made, I can kind of yeah. Get See that that's a great indicator because you know like this movie, by the way was released on my birthday. Oh, really? July 15th, 1988. Um, so I wasn't around for any of that. And so like, like nowadays, if my Uber driver were to be asking me about like, hey, what are, <laughs> are you having problems with the missus? I'd be like, let me, let, let me get out. <laughs> what the hell is wrong with you? Can but I that's true. If that was the first time that they, uh, or, or I'm sorry, if, if that was, uh, if that was normal back then, absolutely like that makes total sense yeah to just have that chit chat going on was absolutely normal and if it's his first time driving a limo he's going to be extra nervous and probably going to do it even more so you know even when i when i first saw this uh it didn't bother me and i've kind of carried that over but i can understand how it would it, it is very jarring especially with the climate of today and just how people are today in you know social interactions in general yeah like it's so different culture shock man yeah like it was just such culture shock to like couldn't imagine. But it's still, I, I still hold it against him that he didn't turn the freaking music down. I'm going to go old man on him for a second. Diddy's in the, <laughs> my co-host Diddy from Joystick and Mouse is in the audience and he's listening right now. He would usually give him an old man moment. I'm going to take an old man moment as probably uh, one of the youngest ones here. Uh, turn your music down, pal. Okay. <laughs> yeah, exactly. That's all you had to do. Hey, if it's too loud, lied. you're too old. No, no, <laughs> no young man. Okay. No, I thought that was really, uh, I thought that was actually genuinely funny in the movie like he was just in there talking to some chick and a freaking car is like exploding behind him yeah the, the building above him it literally lost an entire floor due to a bunch of c4 
and he couldn't hear that because he was blasting music. Yep. Oh yeah. No, he was he was terrible. He made up for it at the end by punching out uh, the other guy um, in the ambulance. But no, he was he was pretty useless throughout the entire movie. Uh, yeah, it was kind of funny. My wife is in the chat, um, and she's been saying I've been having old man moments all day. So maybe it happens. Just... You're allowed every once in a while. Too many kids on your lawn. Too many kids, man. They're, why do they have to ride their bikes through my lawn? They just no. need to stop it. Here was a problem that I had. Uh, obviously, there's a lot of plot holes in this movie. Any good action movie is full of plot holes. If it if it isn't full of plot holes, to me, it's not a good action movie. It just comes with the territory. But when he uh, when he takes out the first terrorist, the the one brother, and then he can't wear his shoes because they're too small. I'm sorry, I have a problem with that because <laughs> that terror that that German dude was like six foot two, right? And Bruce Willis is about five nine on a good day. There's no way his feet are that much bigger than that dude's. I'm sorry. So then he's got to go through the entire rest of the movie barefoot. He never tried anyone else's shoes, too, which I thought For was For real, he had a lot of downtime in between those times, like with a lot of dead bodies surrounding him. There had to have been another guy with like a pair of size 10, 10 and a half shoes, a very average, you know, person. Yeah, why not grab just... the guy's shoes before you threw him out the window, right? The, the body oh, yeah, that he totally. dropped on the car. Like he had time. Yeah. No, it, I did well, like he probably how probably shot through some of those two shoes, maybe. at least one of them. Hey, they it still would have covered his feet than... better than nothing. Yeah. I Touché. did like how they set up him being barefoot, though. Like there was a reason for him to be barefoot in the first yeah. place. There wasn't yeah. a reason for him to stay barefoot throughout the entire movie, but there was a good reason for it. He wanted to clean up. He'd just flown across country and everything happened to him way too quick. So that was yep. great. Um, Matt and the guy was like, yeah, you, you do it like this. Trust me, I've been doing it for nine years. There was another 80s indication when he stands up on the plane, he's got a gun hanging there. Yeah. He's got a gun on the plane. Did I, I don't know if you caught that or not. When when he first yeah. gets up. Oh, the, yeah. So he's wearing he's wearing his pistol on the plane, on the flight. He's smoking in the airport, right? Like Those were you know be, very 80s indications of stuff. Very 80s. This also, I mean, he's Very smoking 80s. throughout the entire movie. Um, yeah. Back when you could still smoke in movies. So. And nowadays, um, like, at least they in were, Hollywood movies, they were getting mad at a, the... in Toronto or something if they want somebody to smoke in the, like in, they they filmed a lot of the scenes for say Resident Evil, in, in uh, Toronto, which is why they could smoke in the movie because you can't do that in Hollywood anymore. Yeah, and that's and that's something that's been an issue. Even like, um, what is it? The new Stranger Things season? They were getting all up in arms about the guy smoking on. Uh, oh yeah, smoking um, in that too much. Um, which I mean, come on, the movie's set like, in the eighties. Yeah. Also, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's set in the eighties, and he's a cop in the eighties. He's gonna smoke. It's just oh, yeah. that's yeah. what happened. The Everybody doctors smoked. were still smoking in the eighties. Yeah, with your kid in the pediatrician office, like yeah. yeah. I, I remember that as a child. <laughs> no, um, can I, go ahead. I was going to say I I, I wanted to see if I could throw in a, a, a continuity error or or just a oh absolutely an issue. And my wife is in the chat room, so she's going to hear this. DLB Sue, um, why didn't he just go down the stairs to begin with? Why did he have to go <laughs> up? If he would have gone down the stairs. And then left through some kind of emergency exit, gone to a payphone, typed nine one one, typed, pushed nine one one, and then he ended up, you know, dialing nine one one from like a legit place. Like maybe this wouldn't have been such a big deal, maybe. But then again, the fact that he stayed put 
in the uh, in the building the whole time. Maybe that helped. Well, he had a vested interest in staying in the building. I think, yeah, I I think in the end, that's probably what you would look at as his motivation for not just taking the stairs down is his wife is there. And he, for all the estrangement that they've had and the argument that they had, which, by the way, I want to talk about in a minute because I really enjoyed that scene. He had a reason to stay. So I can kind of see that. But you're right. Had he just run down 30 flights of stairs and gotten outside, he could have made a whole lot of difference. Um, now him and his wife, I did, it's tropey to have, you know, the estrangement and the wife is cross country and all that, but those two worked really well in their limited scenes together. I mean, they only really had that scene together in this movie and then they're separated until the very end. But that, um, that argument felt like a real argument and not a movie argument. Yeah, where you just cut somebody off because you've had enough of what they're going to say. You know what they're going to say, and you don't want to hear that. You don't want to hear their BS anymore, so you just move on with what you're going to say. Yeah. And then they talk over you, and it's back and forth, and it's... I've been there. But that, they like... had They had genuinely good chemistry. Yeah, absolutely. As, as a couple. Like, it was... Uh, now that you say, I didn't really, that wasn't a takeaway for me, but now, now that I'm kind of taking a moment to reflect on it, that really was actually pretty good. That bathroom scene where they were kind of going at it, like, you know, verbally they were going at it. And then like, that was satisfying. Like that was genuine. It felt genuine. Yeah, exactly. Really. I feel that that really did contribute to later on when Carl's the character, Carl was just so angry and like slamming his styre aug into, uh, into that tray of food and and holly just knew it's like yep the john's got to still be alive oh yeah why else would he be so mad yeah (laughs) yeah and that was one of my uh so this movie had a ton of just really good lines in it and uh quite a few of them i couldn't capture and play because well we talked about how many f-bombs there were but (laughs) but that was one um right right before that when they have the pregnant woman um her what what was it her secretary or whatever and mm-hmm. uh, just her delivery of this line cracked me up. That man looks really pissed. <laughs> do, do you have the Do you have the one where she talks about being, uh, a, you know, go get out of here. You're making me feel like Ebenezer Scrooge. And then the next lines, did you get that? No, I didn't. But that's actually a line that I quote all the time, which is that baby's ready to ten bar. Because what does that even mean? <laughs> Because she's telling her, like, go out and get some champagne. And, you know, she's pregnant. She's like, do you think the baby could take a sip? That baby's ready to tend bar. And Yeah, that baby is ready right now. That that baby is so ready to not be a baby anymore that it could take up a job tending bar. Um, <laughs> so I did capture this, and now I have this to use whenever I feel like it. Ho, ho, ho. This is the greatest <laughs> ho, ho, ho. It's so good. Yeah. Oh. Well, let's see. You know what I say about that? Hmm. I'd say okay. <laughs> yes. I don't have that in front of me, sorry. My soundboard is still getting worked on. Um no, I uh there was I mean, Alan Rickman in this movie just just dripping with charisma. Like they're standing in the ho- in the elevator, him and Takagi. This is still early on, and he's humming Ode to Joy. And then he just kind of looks yes. over at him and it's just nice suit. And so good. And so Ode to Joy was sort of a, um, a theme throughout the movie as kind of the, the Hans Gruber cruise theme. And if you listen to the score, when you go back and watch the movie again, pay attention to some of the score. 
and you'll you'll catch little bits of Ode to Joy woven into the score. Um, oh yeah, that uh, I know. That anytime Hans is on screen, uh, so because the the same um, I cannot remember who what his name is, but the the score for this movie on the whole is actually pretty good. Um, but um, you know, it's it, I wouldn't call it great. It's certainly not one of my favorite scores, but. Um, it, it's consistent because the same composer did, I think, the first three Die Hard movies. But I liked that they worked that in. Um, apparently, John McTiernan told him he wanted to use Ode to Joy for the reveal of the um, uh, vault when it opened up. And the composer was like, why would you use Ode to Joy? Like, can't you use anybody else, not not Beethoven? And um, he told him, no, that's, that's what I want to use. It was used in Kubrick's uh, A Clockwork Orange, and the guy was like, that makes sense. Okay, we can do that. And uh, hmm. so then he used it and kind of worked it into the rest of his score, which I thought was really, really great. Yeah, the next time I watch it, I'm going to have to really pay attention to that. I usually pay a, close attention to, like, the movie score, but I was a little Well, there's so much else with, going on. Yeah, with everything else going on in the movie and then uh, my little live tweeting and stuff. <laughs> like, it was... It was still very good. I but I and and I will go back and watch this numerous times, like for sure. Well, you gotta for sure. You're gonna have to watch it in about uh, three and a half months for Christmas. You know, I don't know if I will. <laughs> so I don't okay. know if I will. So you fall on the <laughs> side of it's not a Christmas movie, and yeah, and, and I, I get it's that. A movie that. Yeah, I think it's a movie that takes place at Christmas time. Okay, and it does. It's Christmas is not a main character in this, like other movies that are considered Christmas. So I, I will ask you this then. Do you consider It's a Wonderful Life a Christmas movie? Um. Yes. Okay. What role does Christmas take place in that movie? Other than the movie taking place during yeah. Christmas. You're prominent. You're, you're, you're um, constantly reminded that it's Christmas time in that movie. You're constantly reminded in this one that it's Christmas. No, but you're not. Tell me, <laughs> tell, me when, tell me other than the beginning and the end of it. In the middle there's... of that, like, w- at what points do you feel like, yeah, this is taking place during oh, Christmas? Oh, oh, oh. Yeah, no, you see, like, not enough, not enough. I, I view this as a Christmas movie in part because uh, it kind of developed into that over the years. It got the cult following of like, hey, this movie takes place at Christmas. You know, it's as much a Christmas movie as, say, anything Shane Black has ever directed because he sets all his movies around Christmas. Um, so, you know, I, I get the argument that it's not a Christmas movie. I f- personally feel that it is because I think a Christmas movie is any movie that you want to watch around Christmas time. So whether that that's be... a great way of putting it. In yeah. that case, it's a Christmas movie for me because I would watch it any time of year, including around Christmas time. Yeah, I mean, it, look, it, National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation, great. It's centered around Christmas. Christmas plays a big role in it. Uh, you know, How the Grinch Stole Christmas, but then I put this in there. Also, I call this a Christmas movie because in my local blockbuster back when I was a kid, it was in that section. That oh, was, was actually, it really? That's yeah, the, this would have been you know mid '90s, and I saw it yeah. sitting in the Christmas movie section one year. So. I, I consider it a Christmas movie. Um, in fact, this one and the second one both take place around Christmas. Yeah. Because um, the sequel to it takes place at um, Dulles around, I think, I don't think it's Christmas Eve again, but I think it's like Christmas week or something. Also, what company throws a Christmas party on Christmas Eve? That was a good, that's a good question. You, Man, po- you posted on. that and you're right. I mean, usually. Like, that was just like a mean thing to do. Go, go, go spend time with your family, people. No, you know what? You got to come to work. Yeah. 
you got to hang out with people that you probably don't want to spend too much time with. On Christmas I've worked Eve. a lot of jobs that made me work Christmas Eve. <laughs> oh, me, I have too. I, I I've worked retail quite a bit. Um, Even factories. Oof. Yeah, but but this was like a, an office building. People with way too much money, uh, and and an office building that isn't even really all that dumb. Uh, so so we're gonna have everybody and you know come on out to this holiday party on Christmas Eve. I just thought that was like, oh man, what company does that to their people? A Japanese company, apparently. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's it. They take work completely differently than we do. Um. So I, I have a yeah, couple so more. I have a couple more clips that I do want to play, just because, like I said, this movie had a ton of really funny lines in it, and there was um, this was a Carl Winslow line, and like I could actually hear this in uh, like an episode of um, Family Matters. Why don't you wake up and smell what you shoveling? I just yeah. I love that line. I love the delivery of it um, because that was is almost like uh, Reginald Vell Johnson refused to swear. Like he was like, no, I'm I'm gonna keep my language clean or something. So he never, because I don't think he he didn't drop an f bomb. Well, he, dropped he was a damn also and talking was to it. he yeah. was also talking to a superior, so he did have to watch his language. Oh, to he didn't care at that point. He really didn't. But at this point, it's so ingrained in him. It's <laughs> like it. You know, when you're talking to your boss, that you there are certain things you say in place of swearing. To, to your boss. Yeah, I suppose. And it's just when you're talking to somebody in that position, you just automatically go to those those phrases. Yeah. I'll take that under advisement, sir. <laughs> there Noted. was also so Robert Davy and uh Grand L. Bush play Agent Johnson and Agent Johnson from the FBI. Yeah, that's a relation. Uh, that did set up this this was genuinely funny. This is Agent Johnson. No, the other one. <laughs> <laughs> I always like that. Um, and I, I will always capture in any of these movies that we watch just the most ridiculous laughs you can, whether it's like, I've gotten a lot of, we, we just wrapped up a Nicolas Cage celebration for a month. Oof. So I had a lot of great yeah. Nicolas Cage laughs, but Ellis's, that, those are great laughs. yeah, they are. And Ellis's laugh in this is like real, that real forced laugh that he does. Um, which was this one. I think I know what you're talking about. <laughs> yes. God, I hate it when people laugh like that. Like. <laughs> I've worked so that, with people that who do that laugh. That was the quintessential yuppie laugh. It's the worst. It, it is. It is the worst, and it was the quintessential yuppie laugh. And it, it does. It just makes you want to punch him right in the nose. I was going to say, it's a face punch laugh. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Well, and especially, but, it's the same guy that says this. Booby. Oh, yeah. that was another reason why I wanted to punch him. <laughs> he like, is oh, the worst. On. Oh, it really, really is. Uh, and the last one I want to play, um, because this is... Only Alan Rickman can deliver this line this way. Hunt that little shit down. <laughs> oh, that so was good. so good. Oh. I, There's something you about almost his... believe it's Snape. <laughs> yeah. Every time, every once in a while, I would hear like "Hunt that little shit down," like Mister Potter, like just something like at the very end. <laughs> but his voice, his uh, accent, um, both German and British, uh, but are so di distinct oh and, and his oh it's him yeah and his german accent his his german accent speaking english in this was really good um yeah. i think and Wait, okay i'm sorry the german I have one... accent speaking english you're talking about his american accent no 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 so he had he had his american bad. accent and then he had his in when he spoke english with a german accent oh that yes yes that, that, was, was, that was good great. and in fact i have one other line i do want to play because 
I took German in high school. And so, um, I noticed little things like this. I don't, I, I'm definitely don't speak it well or hardly at all anymore, but where did I put that? Uh, the way he said, there was a line where he's talking about how he liked building models as a kid. And he's like, the line got structured the way a German would speak it in English, which is, I always enjoyed to make models when I was a boy. And like, yeah. it's little touches like that, that, that give you that authentic. Now, I saw your tweet. You talked about his American accent and how horrible it was. Um, and I've, I've heard that a lot. Um, it that, was bad. That whole scene actually came about because he could do a passable American accent, or so they felt. So they oh, added really? that scene into the movie. Um, and I don't know. Maybe it was because I could just hear Snape behind it all that I just uh, that when he was talking, I was like, "Yeah." And and uh, I do think if you if you don't know who Alan Rickman is and you're seeing this movie for the first time, I think his American accent's okay. Yeah. Sure, I, sure, I could see that. But see definitely, that. it's hard to it's hard to disassociate Alan Rickman from the characters that he's played and who he is. It would be like having, uh, you know, Bill Nighy or um, some other really really good British actor, uh, Sean Connery. No, that's a bad example because he never did anything but Sean Connery. Um, <laughs> yeah, but uh, you're right. I mean, I can I get the hate on it, but at the same time, I think it was passable and. It wasn't like he was going to fool. He wasn't fooling McLean. So I think having it be not that great, but he thinks he's good at it helps. Like, I think you're, you're almost led to believe that, that um, Gruber thinks his American accent is better than it is and that he's going to pull one over on McLean. And McLean the whole time already knows who he is. Well, he exudes confidence the entire movie. He really does. His, his character was, he, he never doubted anything he did until the very end where he, you know, he met his end. Uh, that was the only time where you saw some kind of fear in his eyes, even when he was he, he saw McLean and then ended up trying to kind of back up to grab that pistol that he hid around mm-hmm. the corner. Oh, yeah. He, like that. He, he There was some confidence there. Um, so, so, yeah, he, the one like everybody's always talking about Hans Gruber, one of the best movie villains of all time. Totally. I, I totally see why he's like up there in the the top, I don't know, five, ten movie villains of all time. Yeah. It was brilliant. Brilliant. Now, one last thing to cover because uh, you mentioned how he met his end, right? He gets dropped out the window. So yep. have you heard the story of the filming of that shot? So the way they shot no. that was they actually had him up about uh, about 20 feet or so um, suspended, and they were going to drop him onto an airbag, and then they, they comped in um, the – all the background. So it looks like he's falling a lot further. And then they filmed it in like 300 frames a second to get that slow motion. Well, what they did was McTiernan told the stunt guy, okay, all right, you know, we're holding on to you. We're going to drop you on the count of three. And they did action. They did one, two and dropped him. So that look of fear on his face is genuine fear because he has no, he had no clue he was going to get dropped that at that point. And oh, it I love shocked it. him, and they—that's what they used, and it's—it adds so much authenticity to that uh, that shot. I love when they do stuff like that, and I'm pretty sure you guys talked about it in your Alien episode, but like the way that they shot that scene with the thing coming out of the chest. Mm-hmm. You yep. know what I'm talking about? Yeah, how nobody but the guy on the table knew what was going to happen. Oh my yeah. god, could you imagine being one of those actors? Like, freaking look at that! Like, <laughs> just losing it. Yep. Like, exactly. like it, am I still in character? What's going on here? <laughs> you know, this is and great. Is something and, really good? Do we do we need a doctor? Yeah, like seriously, somebody call nine one one. This is not. <laughs> so, 
something just came out of this guy's chest. No, I, I do. I like that kind of stuff, especially if it's done like in that moment, he's perfectly safe. He's not going to get hurt falling. So right. why not do that? And and you do it in that way where you're just like, okay, we're going to do it on three. And then you just catch him by surprise. Yeah. Um, yeah. And what a great way to, to end your, your villain. Like there's no doubt he's not coming back from that one. Oh, so. oh no. I mean, people have come back from worse than, <laughs> And then situation. what was the uh, the deputy chief sees him land and he just goes, I hope that wasn't one of the hostages. <laughs> well, and, and uh, speaking of coming back afterwards and, and even Deanna, my wife, was like, wait a second, didn't he get hanged? Um, the guy who got hanged, the, the oh, uh, yeah, Carl. German hair metal, they, thank you, um, ended up uh, you know coming on out of there and getting shot 500 more times by Winslow. Like, that was great. Well, and not only did that he come great. out of the body bag, he came out of the body bag with the gun still in his hand. Yeah, like who is the irresponsible police? Like, like I want, I want to see like what happened with the EMTs and stuff. They were like, okay, who left the gun on the body? Like, like who didn't give that to evidence? Like, just Jerry, Jerry, did you did you do it again, Jerry? Damn it, Jerry, Jerry, was that you? Jerry's in the corner? Yeah, sorry, That's just, uh, sorry. Yeah, that was. I ran out of Ziplocs. I just figured we'd. <laughs> Throw it in the bag. Extra Ziplocs in the glove compartment. You know, something like that. <laughs> well, body bag is just a really big evidence bag, so I figured. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Really good at keeping the fluids in. <laughs> well, uh, this has been a heck of a uh, discussion, and I'm really glad that we got to show you this movie for the first time. Yeah. Uh, Thanks for and, being the catalyst for this. And now you've got uh, you've got two more worth watching, because um, really two and three yeah. are are definitely worth a watch. Uh, three has Samuel L. Jackson. It's more of a buddy cop almost, um, because the two of them have to work together. It's they're not both cops, Ooh. but they have to work together. It's absolutely it's worth more, it. watch it, that it, one and then go back and listen to our episode on it if you want. But um, I shall. Yeah, but I definitely shall. see that. And and I think. And that one was directed by McTiernan as well. Um, this, the second one wasn't, but it's still a good action movie, and it's it's worth a watch for sure. Yeah, I would. T- I want to watch all of them. I mean, whether or not they're good or bad, like I'll see. I'm kind of a completionist when it comes to. That's fair. Like, like even uh, what is it? Godfather three, like the Ooh. really bad one. Yeah. I saw Godfather one, like I mentioned, like earlier this year. My wife and I saw it for the first time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I still got to see Godfather two. Yeah, like everybody's like Godfather Two's the best one out of that whole thing. Yeah, um, very much looking forward to that. In fact, my co-host on Joystick Mouse, J Dimes, I think it was J Dimes, or was it Diddy? One of those two. Let me borrow their DVD set. Nice. They're gonna give me. They're gonna give me some shit about that. So I got to get through all that, um, and I need to get through some 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 Die Hard. Lots of lots of stuff for me to watch. So this this opened up the realm of possibilities, everybody. So thank you for making that happen. Well, thank you for joining us and watching this. Um, I also want to thank Christina for being here. Um, we kind of oh, nice. didn't give you a whole lot of room to talk, so sorry about that. Oh, but... I'm sorry. Nah, no worries. I'm usually the quiet one anyways. <laughs> you slide in with something funny here every once in a while, and uh, then you just sit and let us yammer on. Um, also, Keith, thank you for, for joining us. Not a problem. It's always fun. And, of course, Alex, thank you for being here this week. Yeah, thanks for having me. It was a lot of fun. And you have your own podcast, right? Yes, I have a few things that I do. Oh. Um, is now the part where I plug all that? Go for it. 
By all means. All right. So uh, you can find out everything that I do over at IncastMediaNetwork.com. I do a few different podcasts. One of them is The Dad Chronicle, um, which is a podcast chronicling my experience going through fatherhood where I interview other dads out there. Um, uh, Travis, we'll have to have you on there, right? Oh, Um, hit me up for that sometime. Oh, yeah. Whoever wants to be on it. Um, So absolutely. Um, And then also subject matter experts on the uh the topic of parenting uh it's it's sort of my way of giving back to the community of parents out there um and it's been a lot of fun uh joystick and mouse is one that we mentioned at the top of the show my two co-hosts are here in chat uh that is diddy and jdimes so joystickmouse.com for that everything video game and uh video game related from the perspective of a bunch of casual gamers it's a lot of fun we record that tomorrow by the way if you head over to twitch.tv slash alex albisu you can watch that live um, every Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern. And finally, uh, America's Next Out Podcaster. Um, I uh, placed second in that uh, uh, season one, and we're kicking off season two. I've been doing all of the mid-season interviews over there, uh, so you can hear a lot of perspectives from that show. If you head over to America's Next Out Podcaster.com, that was a lot of fun. I talked to all the judges, all the contestants, the hosts, so... It's a lot of fun. Very yeah. cool. They were smart to have you do the interviews because you, I have to say, listening to like Dad Chronicle, you do really good interviews. I appreciate it. Yeah, that's I'm that's kind of my... I'm going to have to check that one out. Yeah, yeah. Thedadchronicle.com. Oh, that's right. Diddy, um, you're going to be on season two. Congratulations to that. Yes. Big shout out to Diddy. Um, very proud of him for that. Uh, that's a great accomplishment. Um, so, yeah, this is a podcast. I've been doing it for a few years now, and um, I feel like I found my niche with the whole interview thing it's been a lot of fun it's been really really good excellent well you can find this show uh at tvstravis.com there's a big button for subscribe right there we're on itunes or i guess it's apple podcasts now google podcasts um if you could go on there and give us a, a, a five-star review um if you like the show that helps us a ton uh it helps kind of bubble us up to the top or closer to the top anyway um and uh we also stream this usually sunday nights around this time uh 8 p.m eastern and uh, right here, twitch.tv slash TV's Travis, um, because I have to name everything after myself. I have uh, a ridiculously huge ego. It's so, all about you. Yep. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so we do this once a week. Um, and next week, I believe the movie we are going to be watching is Hackers um, from Ooh. 1995. So uh, that's a fun one. That's one of my uh, personal favorites. So I always, Oh, yeah. You know, it's... Well, we'll talk about it next week. Um, But until then, what we like to always sign off with is this is what you haven't seen and enjoy your movies.